Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The second author reading of the 8th Annual Lit Fest and Book Fair featured poet Thomas Lux. On June 18, 2013, an eagerly awaiting audience took to the book fair tent to listen to Lux's riveting reading. I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director at Lighthouse. Um, thanks for coming tonight. Oh, you're very kind. Um, oh, so about me. Okay, so um, uh, I decided I want to be a writer. I thought I was going to be a poet. This is back in the early 90s. I'll make this quick. I swear. I totally swear. Um, and so I had a friend who was going to this place called Emerson College in Boston, and I was living in Boston. It was perfect. So um, I applied there. And a couple other places. I didn't get in anywhere else. Uh, but I got in at Emerson. So I think their lax standards was wonderful because it did change my life, I have to say. I really appreciate them, them accepting me. Um, I don't think they turned anybody down, did they? Do you think? Just about right. Can you write a check? Can you write a check today? You're in. Congratulations. You're going to be a wonderful writer. Okay, so um, it was a great experience. I loved it. Um, there were a couple of people I met at Emerson who changed my life. One of them, of course, was Andrew Dupree, program director. Yes. I used to chase her around campus because she had this beautiful hair. And uh, I found out when she had office hours. I know, I'm talking too much. She had office hours, and I would, I would find out when her office hours were. And so she'd be talking to these freshmen about their comp essays, and I would walk by the, by the cubicle. There <laughs> So I finally found the courage to say hello. Um, the other person was Bill Knott, who was one of my instructors, um, who was an amazing poet, kind of a, an unusual guy, sort of a gadfly, um, who really taught me a great deal. And then um, Bill, um, I remember in workshop one night, he said, you know, there's this reading tonight. This poet's coming in. He's really, really good. He's one of my former colleagues, students. I can't remember exactly how he framed it. Um, but I taught him everything I knew. I know. So you should go see him. And that poet was Thomas Lux. So I went, I went to the reading, the room. It was a very small room. It was packed. I sat on the floor. And his daughter was there. And she, she sat facing away from him on the floor, coloring. Um, it was the most adorable thing. And she was just the most, she had this head of hair. This sh- it, was, it was incredible. Um, and he was like, did you like that poem? She was like, yeah, it was okay. After, after he would read certain poems. Um, so I thought, wow, that's, I, I want to have a kid. That's really cool. Um, and I hadn't, I, to be honest, I hadn't read Thomas Lex because I, I went to grad school and I got in and I didn't really know anything about poetry because Emerson accepts everybody. So anyways, um, so this guy comes up with great hair and he starts reading these poems and I was flabbergasted. I was like, this guy's freaking amazing. He writes about regular stuff and things you can understand, which is good for a person like me, right? <laughs> I, I, I like to understand what's going on. And he was just flat out hilarious and brilliant. And, you know, I think there's something about humor capturing or allowing you to get into the deepest recesses of the human heart. And I think Tom Lux's poetry um, does that. And so uh, immediately um, it, it, opened, it opened my mind to what poetry can do. So I'm forever grateful for that. So um, that's my way of saying give it up for Tom Lux.
thank you for that that <laughs> sweet and wonderful introduction. Uh, I was at undergrad, an undergraduate at Emerson, and it was the only college I got into uh, as, as well. Uh, for me, it was right place and right time. Very lucky, um, and sounds like it was for, for you guys, uh, too. Uh, Bill Knott is just the strangest and most brilliant poet uh, today. More of you, uh, if you don't know him, uh, should know him. But I'm really, I really love being here. I was here about a little over a year ago, and I was so impressed by the, by the spirit of this place and the fact that something like this can exist uh, without major institutional uh, support, like a university or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and it seems to be thriving, and there are so many uh, good people here, and I've uh, had a class for the last couple of days and will for three more days. Uh, that's fantastic. And so it's just a privilege to, to be here. And these kinds of things that are supporting poetry and literature in America are absolutely important. We cannot count on the government. Uh, they help uh, sometimes. We cannot count on institutions. They help too, but but it has to come from, uh, a good part of it has to come from us, from, from people who love poetry, who love literature, who need to write, who need to read. And this is one of the handful of places that I've been to that seems to be uh, not only surviving, but but thriving, and uh, and that has to do with, of course, the people who run it, and then the people who support it, who come and and, and take these classes. So I'm, uh, it's a privilege to be uh, to be here. Uh, a, a couple people asked me to read uh, poems, so so I will, and then I'm going to read mostly uh, pretty new poems, kind of try some uh, things out on you. Uh, but it was autobiographical. You wanted me to read Lynn, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, autobiographical. What did you say? <laughs> autobiographical. Uh, you'll, you'll see. Uh, the minute my brother gets out of jail, I want some answers. When our mother murdered our father, did... She find out first, did he tell her, the pistol's tip parting his temple's fine hairs, did he tell her where our sister, the youngest, Alice, hid the money Grandma, mother's side, stole from her agent, olden golden age club? Uh... I gotta if I if I stumble a little bit it's because uh, my host forced me to drink a margarita <laughs> and, and and a half of one a margarita a margarita and a half uh, the second one they had to tie me to the chair uh, and uh, they held my head back and poured it down my throat but uh, uh, but uh, I think I can still do this okay but. Uh, but after uh, Grandma's mother's side that they stole from the mother's age group, uh, uh, he says, uh, It was a lot of money, but enough to die for, was what Mom said she asked him, giving him a choice. And then she says, I'll see you in hell, she said. Dad said. And then she said, this is in the trial transcript. Not any time soon, needle dick. <laughs> 
We know Alice hid the money. She was arrested a week later in Tacoma for armed robbery, which she would not have done if she had it. Alice was, uh, she died of a heroin overdose six months after making bail, syphilitic, stupid, and rude, but not greedy. So she hid the money, or Grandma did, uh, since, but since her stroke can't say a word, doesn't seem to know anybody. Doing a dime at Dannemoran for an unrelated sex crime, my brother might know something but won't answer. My letters refuses to see me, though he was the one who called me at Divinity School when Mom was arrested. <laughs> He could hardly get the story out from laughing so much. Dad had missed his third in a row the day before at, uh, with his parole officer. The cops were sent to pick him up. Bad timing, said Mom, and found him before he was cold. He was going back to jail anyway, Mom said, said the cops, which they could and did use against her to the tune of double digits, which means... What with the lupus, she's guaranteed to die inside. Ask me? She won't talk to me. She won't give me the time of day. It was a hard childhood. Somebody once asked me how to read after reading. Did that really happen to you? And I, and I said, no, it wouldn't be funny if it happened to me. And she said, yes, it would. So I said, okay. It's actually kind of a parody of autobiographical poems. It's a, a kind of making fun of uh, in a in a hyperbolic way. Uh, someone asked me to read this poem. Sometimes uh, I can tell something about the people who asked me to read certain poems, but this is called... <laughs> Every time someone masturbates, God kills a kitten. <laughs> it was actually something the eight-year-old grandson of a child of mine said to uh, my friend. Uh, where he learned that, uh, I don't know, but uh, whoever told him that should uh, be accused of child abuse. Every time someone masturbates, God kills a chicken. Why not kill a rat? There's lots of rats. Remember the time you gave some of them fleas, which killed them? That was good. But then the fleas jumped off the dead rats and bit humans, and who died too, about a third of them on the planet. You were good to Poland, hardly any occurrences, which you made up for in following centuries. How about snakes? Why such vituperation? Little whips you made with such racking poison. How about clams? Would one clam feel the loss of another clam in at least a version of Greece? I'm not, I'm not sorry. I prefer clams to rats or snakes. I eat clams, but I'm willing to never eat a clam again for the kittens. <laughs> How about you? I'm addressing God in this poem. How about you? How about adjusting your plan a little? How about a little less hard ass? How about you tell your flock it's time to let this bill pass? <laughs> I'm going to 
I'll try some fairly new poems. Uh, by new, I don't mean I wrote them up on, on the way up to the podium, uh, but uh, uh, that I've been working on for a couple months. I still have a lot of some notes on them. I'm going to uh, revisions on them, but I'll, I'll try to read uh, through them as, as well as I can. Somebody told me, Mark, when Mark uh, Doty was here a few weeks ago, he, he mentioned that uh, read, trying out new poems was a uh, part of his revisionary process, and it is for me too. You can uh, hear things, uh, uh, pick up things when you read poems uh, that, that are not working or might be working uh, by reading them out, out loud. Uh, this is called Praise God Bare Bones, which is the name of a, uh, a preacher who was contemporary with uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Praise God Bare Bones, that was his name. I shall take the name Praise God Bare Bones, although it belongs to someone long dead, a preacher, of, of course, uh, one of the certain ones, which I am not. So hard cheese on him, I'm taking his name. <laughs> I've an impulse to praise, am ambivalent about God, and bare bones, unless they are burned, is the way it will be. I like the bang, 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 bang of those four syllables in a row. I'd, I'd like to hear over the intercom. Praise God, bare bones report to the principal's office immediately. What would my pals call me? Bony? I'm, I, I'm taking the name because it's difficult not to write satire. There's a Latin phrase for the above line. Cicero? Look it up. You can, you can do that with one tool in your hand, and you won't have to climb a high library's ladder to haul down a creaking book like I did when I was Thomas Lux, who is now gone, absorbed into PGBB, like a good verb absorbs and therefore makes superfluous its adverb. That's something I've been saying in class recently. <laughs> Uh, too. Uh, I don't know much about that guy other than his than, than his name, and that it's arguably four stresses in a row. Uh, I do read write a lot about things that that uh, come up or. Uh, in history, that things that I've read about and strike me, uh, I usually do something fairly strange with them, but uh, often poems begin with something I've read. And I found a note in my notebooks uh, uh, several months ago that just simply said, Attila the Hun meets Pope Leo I. Uh, I must have read a book about about that and just put that down as, as a note in, uh, in my notebook. So that's the title, Attila the Hun Meets Pope Leo I. Not a meaning I've researched, though I doubt it went well for the Pope. <laughs> I'd rather imagine the horse sweat and saddle smell, the hungry men, the acrid of blood and iron, uh, a thousand cooking fires roasting anything roastable. Who, who translated? The scribes were, were present. 
It was. Remember, I did no research beyond a note that said Attila the Hun meets Pope Leo I. A hard talk. (laughs) Attila smashed his wine cup on the table, splashing the Pope's cassock. I thought about Attila that night, polishing his boots with it, and the Pope in jail, perhaps in an oubliette. History, the specifics of it, are always different. Its people are not. I'd rather think of another Attila. Attila Joseph, the great Hungarian poet. He was teased as a schoolboy about his given name. For most of his life, if he had milk in his coffee and someone else did not, he felt guilt. Attila, followed by the trochee Joseph, lives before Attila, followed by the I am, the Hun, and so it would be with my son and as well with his son. I don't know if any of you know that great Hungarian poet, Attila Joseph. As far as I know, there's only one book of his translated in English, and it was a long time ago by a guy named John Botke. There might be others now, but somewhere I have a a typescript of of all of his poems uh, translated into English by, uh, by Botke. John Botke. This one is called uh, Anomatomania. Anomatomania, uh, which the first line explains uh, what it is. Anomatomania, the word for the inability to find the right word, (laughs) leads me to self diagnosed. Anomatomaniac. (laughs) It's not a full scholarship to the Laughing Academy, ultra-hot hydrotherapy, nor even the 20-volume OED I need. I dislike a thesaurus. They provide synonyms, never discovery. I accept the fallibility of language, its spastic elasticity. I expect that language I accept that language can be manipulated towards deceit. For example, the Mahatma propaganda, i.e. Goebbels. I accept and mourn, though not a lot, the loss of the dash semicolon pair, a sound of a pause unlike no other pause. And when the words are tedious and tedious alter their order, Roll me off a fucking cliff. (laughs) Language is dying. The novel is dying. Poetry is a corpse colder than the Iceman. They've all been dying for thousands of years. Yet people still write. People still read. And everybody knows nothing is really real until it is written. Even those who cannot read know that. We were, we were talking about this at dinner a little bit, how this keeps coming up every once in a while. Poetry is dead, the novel is dead, uh, blah, blah. Uh, but we are living proof uh, 
tonight uh, and, and lots of other places that that's not true. Uh, there's never been more good books written. There's never been more good poets, I, I think, uh, in America. Uh, I think we're in a, in a wonderful time for poetry. Somebody said uh, years ago, there's always periodically one of these articles about poetry is dead, particularly poetry. Uh, I'm sure there's novels, too, and stuff like that. They're dead, too. But uh, somebody wrote years ago and uh, several years ago, and Donald Hall responded, uh, and he said, you know what? Uh, poetry is not dead. Poetry hasn't changed. It's you. That is that has changed. Uh, you're not this young person a- anymore in love with Stevens and and Crane and and the other great modernist poets that he fell in love with. You're a different person now, and you're not, you can't be in love with poetry that way. Uh, but but new generations uh, can be in love with uh, poetry and literature uh, in in that way and 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 in their own way. So I thought that was a brilliant answer to that that fairly common complaint. Poetry is is dead. Uh, It's not dead. This is called Double Barrel Sparrow. (laughs) He was a ubiquitous bush and ground hopper, gray-brown, head so tiny it seemed he had no head. They are the birds that epitomize bird brain. In hard winters, they're the only birds you see, wings too stubby to head south. They gain a climate coat and bear it. They live off the seeds of weeds. They're savage birds and harm no one, which is why I nodded to him. He seemed to be nodded to me as I lifted my 16 gauge to where he perched on a branch and gave him both barrels about four inches from his chest, if you could call it a chest. He was there, then vapor, all but his feet, and an inch of orange legs, each capped with a bead of blood. His little talons held the branch until a small breeze knocked them over, but not off, where they swung and hung back and forth like the swing's chains on a playground seconds after a child has left it for the slide or, best of all, the monkey bars. I have a poem in an earlier book about uh, putting a toad on a golf tee and hitting it uh, with a nine iron. I really didn't do that, uh, but I, I really did shoot a poor little wren sparrow, something like that. Uh, uh, I, you know, I was 13, 14 years old, running around with shotguns in the woods. Uh, uh, I'm, it's a poem, a little bit of guilt, but... Uh, uh, but his feet really did just his <laughs> feet were left there and they really did have a little drop of blood and then they swung down and they hung swung back and forth for a little while and then I realized what a stupid fucking thing that was to, to do. this is called the horse the horse poisoner the horse poisoner no one knew why the horses were dying 
two from two farms over, one in town, three at the poor farm. Not in great shape anyway, uh, so caused little concern at first. Then the mayor's son's pony, then three stalls in a row at the local sulky track. The vent set blood to the state police who sent it to Boston for further analysis. Meanwhile, two more died. One was so old it was no surprise, and another mistaken for a deer and shot. (coughs) Some people wanted to make a connection, but the errant hunter was cousin to the sheriff and was known to be too dim to pull off a string of horse poisonings. There were no more suspicious deaths in the county for two months. Then, three lying down next to each other, seen by my cousin Freddie at dawn in the town square. He delivered newspapers. Horses never lie down unless they're sick or, or dead. Test results came back from Boston, and Freddie said, said the Freds, uh, feds, too, inconclusive, though one necropsy showed that the poison was delivered with the aid of a carrot or a sugar cube. <coughs> Just have a few more. You know, I grew up on a, on a dairy farm in Massachusetts, and uh, I didn't write a lot about it uh, until a little bit more in recent years. Uh, I'm a little nervous about autobiographical poems, as maybe that first poem uh, indicated. <laughs> and, uh, 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 so... Even though it's kind of autobiographical, a lot of stuff is uh, invented uh, as well. But this is called Cow Chases Boys. And something like this kind of really did happen. Cow Chases Boys. What we were thinking was bombing the cows with dirt balls from the top of the sandbank, at the bottom of which ran a cold yet iceless brook, Springborn. We knew the cows would pass for a drink, and we'd pried our dirt balls from a crumbling ledge. Here, August lasted a million years. There was no we. I can tell you that now. I did this alone. At one cow, I knew at breathtakingly docile, I threw the dirt balls as if it were a sport at which I was skilled. Boom, a puff of dust off her hip. Boom, boom, drilled her ribs and neck. (coughs) And one more, too close to where she made her milk. She turned and chased me up an apple tree. (laughs) Her rage, her alacrity surprised me. She looked up, I looked down at her. As such with many things, I did this alone. We both knew we'd soon be called home. (coughs) Boys, children, boys, particularly boy children, do really stupid things. (coughs) This is called the lacustrine rat runs. Lacustrine, just a fancy word for lakes. The lacustrine rat runs. Where I come up with some of this stuff, I really have no idea. (laughs) Rats like lakes, though I've never seen the adjective noun pair 
lake rats. Palm rats, yes, gray rats, white rats, big white mice, thatch rats, ship rats, etc. But rats like lates too. They drink from them, patrol the banks for washed up edibles. I don't know what lake rats do in winter. Move into cottages nailed up against the cold would be a good move. Rats prefer not to be seen. That's why, if they can, they'll avoid open spaces. They like to run along actually touching walls. There's a word for it in rat science. But rather than run across a square room, they prefer to run along a wall, make a right, run and make another right, taking their corners tight. Though it expends more energy, it helps them keep their anonymity. The shortest distance between two points, etc., is a law of Euclid's for which rats care not. <laughs> they could get shot with rat shot. It doesn't lessen the chance of getting eaten by a bigger rat. Also, they want us to have no idea how many they are, which is why they prefer lakes with narrow shorelines which is why it's only on moonless, star-starved nights you might not see one. <coughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's any such thing as, uh, uh, you know, lake rats. I had some water. Where did, is that it? I don't know if there's any such thing as lake rats. Sometimes, and maybe you can hear this in some of the poems, something happened to three or four years ago. I've always been deeply interested in, in uh, metaphor. Uh, to me, that's kind of poet's bread and butter. But uh, some of the poems have turned a little more like uh, uh, parables or uh, what's the other word for that? Uh, Not quite fables. Allegories. Allegories. More more kind of allegorical. Where the line is between uh, metaphor and, and allegory, I don't know. But but it seems like that's happening more. It's not something I'm trying to do consciously, really. But uh, it just seems like it's happening uh, more. This is called Ancient Blade, Blades. Lots of, lots of things, lots of my poems start with something uh, that I've read or some weird uh, uh, piece of information that strikes me as having some kind of metaphorical possibility, something worth exploring. And, uh, and then, I, then I try to, and sometimes it works out okay, and sometimes more often than not it, it doesn't. But I read something about uh, that most often old ancient swords are found in riverbeds. That's where they find most of ancient swords, thousands, hundreds of years old uh, swords. And I said, well, why? I started thinking about that. So that's, that's how this poem started. Ancient Blades. Where are the most ancient swords, scabbardless, handleless, found? Riverbeds. Swords, sword fights, riverbeds? If the river were shallow and the thought was not to stain the earth with more blood, to be retrievable, the stab man sword? You never left a sword behind, especially in enemies whom you've slain. 
<coughs> did every river have a bridge of swords, which then collapsed? <coughs> Was each hope to be hidden a murder weapon? Steel blade grade or iron or bronze was precious a thousand years ago or more thousands. The anthro and riverologists all know riverbeds are the place to look, if you're looking, for ancient blades, though they differ on how they got there. Most think Obluvians, flash floods, earthquakes, even glaciers passed over battlefields and dragged swords, pike tips, breastplates to the rivers, which were meant to take them to the sea. There's a new argument towards which I lean, led by a professor from the Colorado School of Mines, who believes they were taken to the rivers to be washed of blood, and some left from the living man's hands into the river, want to be long, swift, silvery fish, though they could not. <clears throat> there is really a Colorado School of Mines, right? Uh, uh. <clears throat> there is no, no, no professor there that I know of that has that theory, but... Uh. <clears throat> One of the good things about being a poet is you can make stuff up. And make stuff up. Uh, this is called Tristan da Cunha. It's one of the most isolated islands in the world. It's much further south than St. Helena's and Ascension Island. It's, it's uh, between uh, uh, Cape of Good Hope and Argentina. It's one of the most inaccessible islands in, in the world. Uh, and those kind of places always uh, fascinated me. This has uh, actual... Uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, la longitude and latitude uh, uh, numbers uh, in it, which I had to somebody uh, get somebody to find for me and, uh, and show me how to write. And I can't read them out loud, so I'll just uh, skip that part. But uh, just remember, it's way, way, way down there. And then it mentions a couple islands that are nearby. Uh, one is called... Uh, Inaccessible Island, and the other is called Nightingale Island, which is where the speaker of this poem is ultimately uh, destined uh, for. Uh, Nightingale Island, Nightingale Fever was something the Russians uh, used, the phrase they use for the inability to stop writing poetry. If you had <laughs> Nightingale Fever, so uh, uh, this, this island was not named uh, for that reason. It was just some guy who... Uh, Named Nightingale, maybe first saw it. Uh, but Tristan da Cunha. Uh, that might be a, a slight mispronunciation of the, of the word. I've reserved a ticket one way to Tristan da Cunha Island. Then it's onward to its cousins, Inaccessible Island and Nightingale Island, which is my last stop. First called Broken Island, then Nightingale Island, then Love Island, and again, finally, Nightingale Island is where I'm relocating. The first 7,550 miles I'll fly from the Cape of Good Hope to Tristan da Cunha, the main island. Then I'll paddle to Inaccessible Island, about 18 nautical miles southwest, and since it's inaccessible... 
then on to Nightingale, 16, ditto, miles southeast. I, I, I paddle well. Uh, where I'll buy one square acre from the rockhopper penguins, the most cash-strapped inhabitants. <coughs> Overcrowded, they're happy to sell. I've chosen a spot on the wind-diminished side near the big volcanic rock called Big Rock. This is where you'll find the better nests. Real estate anywhere is easy to assess. I'll open a little mail-order guano business. <coughs> a tent, a spoon, a salt, a sweet water kit. I'll plant some lettuces in rows. I'll keep a tiny camp stove lit. Pardon me. I'm sorry. Lickety split. It's time to leave now. Time to adios. <laughs> I just, you know, I came across somewhere reading that this was one of the world's most inaccessible places. And how can you not want to know, at least know more about that if you're not going to write about it? Uh, this is called uh, nullius in verba, a Latin phrase which means take nobody's word for it. Uh, don't believe anything anybody says. It's the. Uh, it's the motto of uh, the Royal Society, a science society in, in England. Uh, Nullius in verba. Don't recall reading that in high school Latin class. <laughs> if implicit could be nailed to the wall, it was implicit. You took the teacher's word for it. I was a poor student and needed extra tutoring, on Saturday mornings, a defrocked priest in the family drilled me in his mother's basement. Nullius and Verba never came up. I required help with algebra also. I didn't believe an X could equal a Y. I still don't. In fact, I believe algebra is a conspiracy of what? And by whom, I can't say here, but I have proof. <laughs> Latin, at least, is a language, a good language. And it isn't dead. Read Catullus. Take my word for it. It's anything but dead. <laughs> Read Catullus. Read Catullus. Uh, I'll just read a, a, a couple more. This is called For My Sister. For My Sister. Forever we've never spoken. First our mother died and soon after our father. He loved you and I understood why when your niece, my daughter, arrived. You'd look like her. She is already 25. Were you younger than me or older? Mother starved to death, in truth. For many months she couldn't swallow. The doctor wrote somewhere what it's called and refused a nutrients tube. I'd feed her ice cream soda with a spoon. Father didn't know what to do when his legs were lost beneath him. Remember when he put each of us on a knee and bounced us at a canter? 
They lived to a great age in that lousy house. I had handrails installed. The doctor said they'd fall, they'd fall. Squirrels lived in the attic, and once a blur across the rug, mother said, that's our mouse. She also said, as father lifted couch pillows, he's looking for his teeth. I have a box of papers, a deed for pasture land, naturalization forms, our mother's mother's civil defense ID, and many pictures, birth and death certificates, though none of or for or for you. <coughs> now, I know there's a, a problem with that poem, is that I never had a sister. And, uh, of course, it, it seems like people, uh, you know, want to think it, something happened, that like she was lost or abortion or died as a child or something. But it's really just a poem about longing to have a sister. I, always just, I was an only child, and I always longed to have a sister, particularly a sister. I don't know why. And a younger sister, maybe that I could protect or something. But uh, uh, I don't know how to quite, in that poem, solve that problem of that ambiguity. of Because of, it can't be spelled out that I never really had it. That's what the poem is about. Uh, uh, and I've never quite been able to... I don't know how to solve that uh, problem, if anybody has any ideas. <laughs> let, me, let me know. Uh, I think I had one more poem. Uh, just a little poem to finish. It's called The Milking Stool. As I told you, I grew up on a, on a dairy farm in Massachusetts. The Milking Stool. The milking stool on which my uncle sat had once been painted black. He'd call to us, Come close, closer, children. She won't hurt you. And we did. And he took an udder and pulled it down and angled it out to shoot each child, smallest to tallest, right between the eyes with a gush of warm milk. It was a skill the cow didn't seem to mind. Come closer, children, close, five or six of us, in a row, right between the eyes. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you. Thanks, 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 thanks. I, I, I said earlier, I said earlier that I'd be happy to answer a, a, a few questions uh, after I was uh, finished uh, reading. If anybody has any, I'd be, I'd be happy to answer a few uh, questions. Uh, usually, it takes a teacher in the class, but that, that's not. Uh, I, I don't know. As an only child, any other only children in this room? Uh, I, Why can't you say it in because I, I have to. It has to be somewhat ambiguous uh, whether who she, whether she was really there or not. Uh, the first line says something like, a, "For forever, I've never talked to her." Uh, so I've never known her. But then there's other things that seem very real, like like he bounced both of us on on his uh, knee. Uh, so it's just one of those things in a poem where you try to you, you 
you know, you can't spell things out, but you also don't want it to be too ambiguous. And I, I have not been able to solve that problem in this in this particular poem. Uh, yeah. No, she's not real. I didn't have a no, sister. But I mean, in your poem, it sounds like you kind of want it both ways. Well, I I long I long to have a sister. I always did, and I probably still do. And maybe that came more uh, obvious or into the forefront when when both of my parents were passing. Uh, and uh, not that I wanted more help or anything like that, but. Uh, I wanted somebody to be able to share that with and and them to share what what human beings uh, their their they were. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's not a solvable uh, problem. Maybe, maybe that's a possibility. I'm, I've been asking people. I've only read this poem a couple of times, and I've been asking people. I need all the help I can get. Uh, we all do, really. I mean, come on, this is a hard thing to do and uh, try to get the, the subtleties and stuff. And particularly if you're reading a poem out loud and people haven't read it and uh, they're just hearing it for the first time, uh, it's, it's tricky to get across the, you know, the tones and things like that. Any other questions? Well, again, I am, I am super pleased to be here and, and impressed by this place and obviously you're all supporting it and benefit benefiting from it and I, and I hope you continue. I'm very grateful to, to my uh, hosts here and uh, having a terrific class. We got three more classes we're cooking so uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.